Hello and welcome to the Lessons from Lab and Life podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that our podcast offers you some new perspective. Today I'm joined by my colleague, Nathan Tanner. Nathan's a senior scientist in the NEB Nucleic Acid Replication Research Group. Thanks for joining me, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Nathan and I had the opportunity to interview another Nathan, Nathan Schopp, a graduate student at Caltech who was one of the 2019 Passion and Science Award winners. Nathan's work is a great demonstration of how loop-mediated isothermal amplification, or LAMP, can be used for point-of-care testing. He developed an assay that takes under 30 minutes and can accurately measure antibiotic resistance from real clinical samples. This allows antibiotics to be prescribed more conservatively for better antibiotic stewardship and used more effectively for better patient outcomes. Hi, Nathan and Nathan. Thank you both so much for being here today. Hi, Lydia. Hello. Um, So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about antibiotic resistance and how concerned like the public should be with antibiotic resistance and is it something we're talking about being very concerned about right now or something that we're thinking about being concerned about in 10 years? Yeah, I think it's definitely something we need to be concerned about uh, right now. So I think what helps to to sort of realize that is is an appreciation for how important antibiotics are to modern medicine in a lot of scenarios that maybe you know, your average sort of healthier person doesn't think about, but in everything from neonatal care to post-operative care um, to any immunocompromised case, uh, antibiotics serve a critical role. And so, you know, when we're running out or when resistance rates are rising to the point that physicians can't prescribe the antibiotics they're used to using, um, and so they have to escalate treatment, that becomes a really big problem. And, and it's already becoming a problem. And I think we're just sort of realizing that uh, recently and, and now. So as of today, how does a physician decide what antibiotic they're going to prescribe? It depends on the situation, obviously. Um, In your sort of outpatient scenario or, uh, you know, like an STI clinic, you can imagine um, people come in, uh, they get diagnosed with an infection, a bacterial infection, and uh, the physician doesn't necessarily have a relationship with them. And so... What that means is they have to make a prescription on the spot, and so they do um, empirical prescribing, which means they take the evidence at hand and then decide which antibiotic to prescribe. But obviously in those situations, they're going to prioritize patient outcome over anything else, even stewardship, which a lot of physicians care about and are very aware of, but it's just a hard balance to strike when they don't have the information they need um, before prescribing the antibiotic. So what does stewardship mean uh, in the realm of antibiotics? Yeah, that's a good good question. Um, so stewardship just means uh, sort of maximal rational use of antibiotics. So preserving the antibiotics we have um, so that they we can maximize their lifetimes um, and reduce the, the emergence and spread of antibiotic resistance. Are there alternative methods for treatment that are available other than antibiotics? Yeah, again, it depends on the the situation. So in some cases, right, antibiotics are going to be the treatment option. They're they're sort of the the only treatment option, um, and that's what has made them so important. Um, But there are a lot of uh, preemptive measures we can take. So um, reducing antibiotic usage in the environment is one. Vaccines are another huge one. So if you can prevent the infections beforehand, obviously you don't need to use antibiotics. And um, so those strategies are really the most effective and and most promising for 
reducing antibiotic usage in the long term. But that's not going to prevent you know, many, many cases where you still have a bacterial infection that needs to be treated with antibiotics. So what, is that, what does that mean for society as a whole that we're sort of, um, it seems like we're sort of climbing this ladder toward more and more antibiotic resistance? Right. Um, so basically it, it means that as resistance emerges, so you get new mechanisms or transfer of mechanisms from one uh, bacteria to another, um, that physicians, so as resistance rates increase, uh, physicians have fewer and fewer options that they can safely use, and by safely I mean that they can guarantee the antibiotic they're prescribing is going to treat their patient's infection. And so you can, when you can't guarantee the outcome, um, what is done, again, in depending on the scenario, but quite often is treatment will be escalated to a broader spectrum um, or a second or third line antibiotic, um, and then obviously we start using those more, and the cycle continues, and you get new mechanisms of resistance emerging and spreading to those antibiotics as well. So it's sort of a, uh, it speeds up the resistance cycle, which is a natural cycle, I think it's important to remember, um, but that's really the issue. And then all of a sudden you end up where you only have one viable treatment option left, right, at, in terms of the recommended treatments, and so that's really the main issue. Are there a lot of new antibiotics in the pipeline, new treatments to come to hopefully help with some of this, or is that all a long way off? Uh, yeah, you would hope um, there aren't a lot, and that's sort of a whole other issue and one that absolutely needs to be addressed as well. Um, but there's not necessarily a lot of motivation for making new antibiotics, um, and this sort of goes back to another solution to the problem or, or, or a piece of the puzzle sort of is we just need increased capital going towards this problem, both human and financial. So there all are incentive programs um, that basically make it profitable immediately if um, you know, a pharmaceutical company, for example, is to develop a new antibiotic, they can get a reward or something like that so that they can pay for a lot of their R&D because what happens now, if they were to do that, um, a lot of times that antibiotic will just sit on the shelf, right? It'll become the new last line antibiotic that everyone wants to preserve and so it's not being used, they're not making money off it, and so, you know, it's, it's mm. sort of understandable that there's not a lot of motivation there, even though it's a huge problem. And I know there's a good deal of awareness with physicians and medical treatment, but what about in, say, agricultural uses and things like that, where there's a lot of antibiotic use that perhaps isn't necessary, but is certainly a big driver of this problem? Right. Um, yeah, again, I, I think uh, the problem there is anytime you use antibiotics, you're giving all these bacteria the chance to uh, develop resistance. And as soon as you develop resistance um, in one pathogen or, uh, you know, a new mechanism emerges, um, a lot of times it can spread and then eventually find its way back to, uh, you know, cases where bacteria are infecting people. And uh, again, that's really the heart of the issue. So I think that's an excellent point as well as uh, sort of environmental stewardship as well as uh, I don't know what you might call, you know, personal stewardship in treating people. And developing resistance, it, it's hard to fight against. It's natural, right? The bacteria are supposed to do that. Right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, they're pretty incredible in, in that way, right? I sort of have a lot of respect, you could almost say, for, uh, uh, for bacteria. Yeah, it's, it's totally natural. And that's another thing to appreciate about antibiotics, right? They're one of the few drugs that the more you use them, the less efficacious they become, which is just not the case for many, many drugs. And um, so they do have a fixed lifetime, right? But we do have enough that if we were to really maximize their lifetime, 
Um, or if you knew every time you prescribe the full profile, sorry, the full susceptibility profile, so you knew exactly which antibiotics you could use, then physicians could make really rational choices about which to prescribe, and they can guarantee patient outcome, which is obviously the priority. So how do we currently monitor antibiotic resistance? So currently, what's done, if you want to find out which antibiotics a pathogen is resistant or susceptible to, uh, they'll take a patient sample, like urine, for example. They'll ship it to a central laboratory um, that will isolate the uh, bacteria from the sample. They'll grow it up, and then they expose it to a bunch of different antibiotics at different concentrations. Um, and that gives you basically what's called the susceptibility profile uh, for that infecting bacteria. Um, and they know for a given antibiotic what concentration will kill that bacteria, and then from that they can categorize it as either susceptible or resistant or intermediate, um, and then they can prescribe based on that information. The problem is obviously the speed at which that happens. A lot of times uh, physicians and or patients can't wait long enough to uh, that two to three days, uh, and so that information doesn't end up getting used at all. But yeah, so that determines the bacterial phenotype, which is really what uh, physicians care the most about. So can you tell our listeners how your method of um, antibiotic resistance um, detection works? Sure. Uh, so what we started thinking about in the lab, um, a lot of other people, including myself, uh, when this started, was a way we could determine phenotype, like I described. So that means the response of bacteria to antibiotics from measuring DNA concentration was sort of the initial method. And the reason that's so advantageous is you can make those measurements really quickly after a very short antibiotic exposure. So we're still looking at the phenotype, but now we can shorten the assay time really significantly uh, to a point, uh, you know, under half an hour that we think is applicable to uh, the, what's called the point of care, which is the, you know, the place antibiotics are being prescribed. So in theory, um, if we were to translate this methodology uh, to... Uh, a device that we could put into clinics, doctors could take the patient sample um, and in half an hour run it and now know the susceptibility profile of the bacteria that is infecting the, the patient they're working with and then make a very informed prescription uh, initially, right? So they don't have to go back. They don't have to wait for results. They don't have to change a prescription. They don't have to recontact that patient um, and they still have all the information they need to make the call. So can you test um, multiple antibiotics in the same test so you'll know sort of like where the threshold is and then the possible um, antibiotics that would treat an infection? Yeah. So right now um, we can test uh, multiple antibiotics is, is really just a matter of sort of multiplexing the same methodology. So mm -hmm. we, the, the important thing is validating that you get a response um, and that we can actually test for susceptibility to a lot of these different antibiotic classes, which wasn't obvious um, immediately, and that's sort of one of the first uh, proofs of concept we performed, was showing that even for antibiotics that don't directly impact nucleic acid replication, uh, you can still measure nucleic acid concentration on the back end to determine susceptibility. So that is really more of sort of a piecing it all together at the end, you know, figuring out how to how to put this all on a device, but it's such a simple workflow that we're pretty confident that uh, that's possible. You mentioned doing things at point of care and assays for that kind of setting. You touched on speed. they got to be fast. got to be really simple. 
and they can't be too expensive or require sophisticated instrumentation. So how does your method handle those hurdles? That's a really good question. And I think also something that uh, most people, including myself, for sure did not appreciate. Um, but, you know, if this is going to be something, if anything is going to be a method that's used, like actually at the point of care, it needs to be pretty much like push button, you put a sample in, you get a result out. Uh, we were talking to one of our collaborators, and they told us at a big microbiology lab, and they said, uh, if it's bigger than a shoebox, they're just not going to have space for it. And that was also kind of eye-opening, because um, that's obviously not very large. Um, and so these have to be very compact, very simple, um, and very rapid. We touched on the time earlier. So the way our method is addressing these issues, which you really have to care about if you're going to make a point of care a diagnostic or assay, is uh, basically thinking about them up front and trying to stick with something that's a very simple workflow. So, for example, uh, our method only requires one splitting step uh, with the control and then a treated or antibiotic treated sample um, for each antibiotic you want to test. So that's relatively simple fluidic handling there. Then you need an extraction step uh, to isolate the nucleic acids, DNA, in the case of uh, our UTI work. Uh, And so again, that's relatively simple. We use a one-step extraction buffer that's compatible with our readout methodology. Um, And so, yeah, I think to answer the question, basically, we've thought about these things up front. Um, We don't require you know, a a microscope on the back end or a mass spec or things like that, which obviously give you, you know, incredible capabilities in certain scenarios. But for something, again, at the point of care, uh, we're really trying to stick with things that we think can be uh, incorporated into, again, that sort of shoebox size device. And how does um, affordability factor into thinking about fitting things into that shoebox size and making them sort of um, achievable in every doctor's office? Right. Again, that's a great question. Um, and we think primarily, we're focusing mainly on the methodology right now. Um, but again, we don't require any fancy instrumentation, mm-hmm. uh, to put it sort of plainly. Um, and then in terms of reagent cost, uh, we consider it, but it's sort of down the road a, a, a problem that we think, you know, with economies of scale, et cetera, wouldn't be too much of an issue. And again, there's nothing super expensive in our in our assay. These are, you know, would be about as cheap, um, hopefully, as the current broth microdilution method, right? You got to pay for the antibiotics that you're going to test. Um, and then you're obviously going to have some sort of consumable part of your device that would, you know, probably be injection molded plastic. Um, but beyond that, um, you know, you could think about having a reusable base station or section of the device that you don't throw away that has the heating and the analysis components in it. Mm-hmm. And so, Hopefully the test itself, the cost of each single test, would be uh, pretty low cost. So a big part of what you're trying to do is doing everything in 30 minutes or less and detecting DNA in that kind of window. That's pretty fast. So how do you go about making an amplification reaction that can work in that kind of time? Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, So I mentioned earlier our, our test is phenotypic, which gives it its generality, but it means that a big chunk of our 30-minute window is already taken up, just exposing the living bacteria to antibiotics because we're measuring the actual response. Um, What that means is we have even less time to do the DNA amplification um, in order to quantify it, which we have to do on the back end, but still in that 30-minute window. Uh, And so what we've uh, 
uh, come up with or what we've used, utilized, I guess, um, are these isothermal DNA amplification methodologies. There's quite a few these days. Uh, we optimized one called loop-mediated isothermal amplification, or LAMP, um, using NEB reagents. And uh, what we found was that through a little bit of optimization and careful primer design, we could get uh, really, really rapid amplification reactions such that we could amplify uh, and count single molecules of DNA uh, in five to eight minutes. And that sort of power for of speed, I think, is... Uh, really special and, and, and really unique to DNA, right? I can't think of another biomolecule where you can quantify single molecules that rapidly. Um, and that allowed us really to get under that 30-minute window. And, I mean, we're really tight on time, and so every minute counts. So every time you have an incremental improvement in your uh, nucleic acid measurement, your DNA measurement, that means you either have more time to do a longer exposure, which can be important depending on the organism uh, you're looking at, or... Uh, it's just enabling. You just have more time in that 30-minute window where you're you're so tight for time. So those reagents um, and the optimization and the, the methodologies themselves have been really critical in meeting that bar. And in addition to the, the speed factor, I would think uh, an isothermal method is attractive because it doesn't require any sophisticated heating and cooling. You can just put it out of temperature and that's it. Right. That's 100% correct. Uh, just like, you know, we'd like to not use any you know, large microscopes or sort of uh, fancier equipment, it's the exact same with, with heat control. And, and if we don't have to thermocycle, everything becomes a lot simpler. Um, there are also methodologies, as, as you know very well out there, for doing uh, really robust but rapid and simple, you know, colorimetric readout, uh, which you could do by eye, or there are lateral flow assays for, for looking at um, amplification of, of DNA as well. Uh, and so, you know, we've thought about incorporating those. One issue we have is we do need to make a very uh, sensitive measurement of the, sorry, a very uh, specific measurement of DNA concentration. Uh, And so right now, uh, to achieve that sensitivity and specificity, we have to stick with measuring, basically counting single molecules, doing what's called a a digital assay. Um, But we've thought about ways to incorporate even simpler readout, because again, like you can't be too simple for a point of care. And so uh, that's been exciting to think about. So it sounds like a lot of the proof-of-point uh, research that you've done for this uh, has been with UTIs and E. coli, but is this the type of technology that could easily be applied to other point-of-care diagnostics? Yeah, I think there's certainly a lot of... I mean, you always learn something when you build a new diagnostic, and there's certainly a ton of applications for uh, rapid or optimized LAMP methodologies, uh, for example, for measuring DNA um, in terms of uh, identification of different infections, um, that alone, you know, is very helpful in a lot of situations. So that's one, uh, alternative application I can imagine. Um, and yeah. And then beyond that, um, another challenge, uh, I thought you might ask was the, uh, different organisms because E. coli is pretty fast, rapidly growing. Um, and that is certainly a challenge, but it's one we're working on. Uh, and we've come up with some, you know, I think of as fun methodologies to, uh, that weren't trivial to, to develop, but now we've got them working pretty well where we can look at um, basically sort of secondary effects. We can, we can look at what the antibiotic impacts and then think of ways to link that to DNA concentration, which we can obviously measure, as I mentioned, really quickly on the back end. And so now 
we've applied that to some slower growing organisms like gonorrhea um, and then a family of bacteria called the Enterobacteraceae. So those are both exciting directions that should be coming out soon. Thanks so much for being here today, Nathan. Thank you. And honestly, thank you for being a champion of antibiotic stewardship and for all your efforts in applying LAMP technology to point-of-care diagnostics in order to preserve antibiotic for future generations. That's what we hope. Thanks for enjoying this episode of the NEB podcast. Be sure to tune in next time when I'll be joined by Jonathan Gutenberg and Omar Aboudier, the first McGovern Fellows of the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT. They'll share with us their thoughts on applying CRISPR gene editing technology to study the mechanisms of aging.